0: Let's pray together as we ask for God's help. Lord God, as we hear your word preached now, I pray that by your spirit and strength and guidance that I might speak words that are true and faithful, clear and helpful. Lord, we pray that by your spirit, open our ears, our hearts, that we might not be discouraged, but encouraged to see Jesus, to live with him as our Lord, remembering that he's coming back soon. Amen. Please think of the last time you saw stars on a clear night. They can light up the sky beautifully, stars can. Stars shine against the backdrop of a black night and they stand out. And like that, God in the Bible, we've just read it today, he asks us to shine like stars in the world. God asks his people to live and think Speak differently from the people around us, the world around us. Live differently from those around us, differently maybe from the way we used to live ourselves. God has saved us to shine and we're going to think about that today. We're returning after one week pause to our series in this book, this letter to the Philippians, written by the Apostle Paul to these uh, Christians in the city of Philippi in Greece. Our passage is part of a section that really started back in chapter 1 and verse 27, where the Christians were told, as citizens of heaven, live worthy of the gospel. In other words, live a gospel driven life. Paul has already said, have a humble and servant attitude, like Christ, who humbly served us. If you were here two weeks ago, do you remember that? That he died a shameful death. But he lives now. As the exalted Lord with authority over everyone, and from chapter two verse eleven, that the implication is that Jesus is the Lord. He's the one that we should submit to as Lord and bow before even now. And so it's in that context that we come to chapter two and verse twelve, and and my first of four points today: obey. Paul is writing to Christian people, people who've turned from their idolatry, turned from ruling their own lives, and they've turned away from that to Jesus and to trust in him and to live with him as Lord. And now in verse 12 he says, therefore, because Jesus Christ is Lord, just as you've always obeyed, keep on going. Obey even more. That word obey there means to listen and obey, to listen and do what God says. And in fact, they would actually obey the Lord by obeying what his apostle, Paul, had said, whether he was speaking to them in person or writing to them from a distance. Their obedience, then, their obedience is described in these words. We read it, didn't we? Work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. That's not saying earn your salvation by your good works for... Remember, they've already been saved. So it's not contradicting the truth that we're justified by faith alone. But it is saying, let the effects of salvation be worked out in your life. Let salvation work out thoroughly through every aspect of your life. Make salvation fruitful here and now. Make salvation fruitful by your continuing efforts to cut sin out of your life. And there to do that, we read, didn't we, with fear and trembling. That fear and trembling is not describing feeling terror, but a deep, awe filled sense of reverence toward God. In Revelation chapter 1, the apostle John sees this vision of the exalted Lord Jesus, the Son of Man. And we read in that passage that he he sees his vision of Jesus with white hair, fiery eyes, a sword coming out of his mouth, and we're told, we read there, don't we, his face shining like the sun in its full strength. I mean, think of that. We, We can't even look at the sun in its full strength. And so how does John respond? I fell at his feet like a dead man. And yet Jesus says, don't be afraid. He didn't need to be terrified. And yet, like John, I think if we really sensed how exalted and glorious and powerful and holy the Lord Jesus is, that we would respond by obeying. We would respond with obeying, with trembling and awe and reverence. We'd want to obey because it's right, because he's Lord, and we are not. Still, we ourselves, we can't do it. We can't obey in our strength. Yes, sin's punishment has been taken by Christ on the cross, and he has broken sin's power over us so that we're no longer slaves to sin, but sin's presence remains in our hearts, and so we need God's power. We need God's strength to obey. And then look at the comforting words in verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to work. And so we are commanded to obey and to work out our salvation, but that is knowing and relying on God who's working in us, God who is working in you. And so we can only think differently and work because God is working in us by his Spirit. And so obedience that we're asked to, to follow, this obedience, it's not, you've just got to try harder, try harder, work harder. It's not that. And it's not just let go and let God and don't bother trying, <laughs> don't bother doing anything. Rather, God is at work, and so we need to take responsibility. God is at work, and we need to take responsibility too. And so God is, is behind us and is in us. Working out what is pleasing to him. I think it's like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. And yet, not I, but the grace of God that was with me. I worked harder. And yet it was God in me doing that. Got to hold those two things together. God is at work in us to bring about his good purposes. Well, that word can mean his good pleasure. I want to say maybe it's both. For his good purposes, for his pleasure. So as we draw this together, how can we obey? Firstly, by seeing your need, by crying out for grace and for God's strength and for God's spirit to do what only he can. And by remembering that the Lord is awesome in his glory, you should bow before him and do what he says. And by remembering that the Father delights in our obedience. I want to say too, though, that we need to obey and not trust in our feelings. Paul's going to mention in a moment that we should not grumble and argue. And maybe you are grumbling and arguing with someone in your home someone at church, someone at work. And maybe you know it's a struggle. Maybe you know you just don't feel like loving that person or loving your enemy, loving the person in your family. One man writes, I don't always feel like loving my wife, but by God's grace, I love her. I choose to. And in those unnatural forced moments when I exercise my will and just lay down my life just to love her, I find that something begins to happen in me. I begin to feel. So the feelings can follow the actions. I feel the more I act, he says. So we obey because we're saved people. We follow our Lord, whether we feel like obeying or not. Next, the expectation, the command, it's ratcheted up further, really, with these commands to be faultless. Verses 14 to 16 are really one long, complex sentence where the Philippians and we are told to be blameless, be pure, be faultless. Blameless does not mean sinless. I mean, that's not true of me or you. It's not true for anyone. These words here describe all believers striving to be free of Moral, obvious moral defects and blatant sins. The word pure describes what wine that is unmixed, wine that hasn't been watered down with water, or it describes pure metal that's had the dross and impurities removed. And so for us, it's describing unmixed, undefiled, good character, clear consciences. And that's what our Lord and God asks of us, his children, we're told. We're we're his children. We, when we believe and trust in Jesus, we get adopted as God's children. And Christ died so that we could be washed clean of all of our sins. That's what we'll remember in the supper soon. And now we're being told, be who you are. Be who you are. We are to be who God has saved us to be, his holy people. We as God's children are to be like our father, our heavenly father. We are to display the family likeness and be faultless. Again, unlike for God the Father, us being faultless won't mean sinless. We will sin every day and we will never stop needing the cleansing of the cross of Christ. But now as God's children, our Father says, do what I ask, do what I ask, and follow my example. And for the Philippians, Paul wants to highlight something in particular. There in verse 14, it's that do everything without grumbling and arguing. And that grumbling describes what you might do to yourself or what you might think or what you might say to others when you're not happy or you're not getting what you want. And that arguing, it can mean negative questioning. It also comes when we're not happy and it can lead to conflict and divisions. The grumbling and arguing was likely happening in the church and that's why Paul mentions it. But I wonder what your grumbling face looks like. Maybe it's like one of those, maybe it's something different. Do those around you see your grumbling face often? Do you need to turn from grumbling and from arguing attitudes? Remember what happened to the Israelites? That they'd been freed from that 400-year slavery in Egypt. They were freed from slavery. They were in the wilderness, hungry and thirsty. Do you remember how in Exodus 17 they grumbled to Moses? Really, they grumbled against Moses and they grumbled against the Lord, grumbling and arguing with their leader and their Lord repeatedly. And then fast forward 40 years, and all that adult generation has died in the wilderness for their disobedience. And Moses now speaks to the children who've grown up. And he says, primarily about their parents, it's a warning though, he says in Deuteronomy 32, that this people had acted corruptly toward him, and they are not his children but a devious and crooked generation. And now in these words, Paul sort of turns that on his head and they really form the background of what Paul says here in Philippians 2 because he's saying by God's grace we are God's children and we are to be faultless, not like those Israelites in the wilderness. We're to be faultless in a crooked and perverted generation when we live surrounded by people who don't live God's way. Where to be different? The world around us, the non believers around us, they live lives that are crooked. They don't live right and they've turned their backs on God. And we are to remain committed to doing what's right without fault, even when most others don't. And even when you're peer pressured into living differently. And Paul expands on this in our next point, shine, shine like stars. He says, doesn't he be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. In 1 John, it says that God is light and there's absolutely no darkness in him. And then Jesus says in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And amazingly, the Lord Jesus said about his disciples, and it includes we who follow him, he said in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand and it gives light To all who are in the house, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify, give glory to your Father in heaven. We are the light of the world because we're united to Jesus who is the light, and Jesus by his spirit is in us. And therefore we are to shine like stars in this dark and crooked world. And that will mean that we are to reflect God's character, will display the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, kindness, and goodness and gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. When you think about the fruit of the Spirit, do your work colleagues see those qualities in you? Do other students at school or uni see those qualities, that fruit in you? Do your non-Christian family members see those qualities shine out from you? And maybe they do or they might because you're not grumbling and arguing and self-seeking but actually doing the opposite. When we think about not grumbling and arguing, yes, we can be honest and speak the truth about our opinions or be open about what's hard. But rather, may we do that while still trusting in the Lord and responding with hope and enduring patience and seeking the good of others before ourselves. And from Matthew chapter 5 there, we're going to shine when we do good works, when we do good to others. And so I ask, do people around you who don't know God see your good works? And not that you're doing them for your own sake or to be noticed. It's not for your own glory, but because they know you serve the Heavenly Father, you've spoken about with Have you ever shared with anyone that you live this way because you've been saved by and loved by God? But in Philippians chapter 2, verse 16, come back to that. We're told to shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Even in the face of opposition and attacks from false teachers or from unbelievers, we are to hold firm to the truth of God's word. That means we keep believing that true life, flourishing life, eternal life comes through faith in Jesus. We keep living his way in obeying and shining lights in our dark worlds But that word, the original word hold firm can also mean hold forth, hold forth. And if we are holding firm to the truth of God's word, we will also hold it forth to others. We will share the news about Jesus, which gives life with people around us. And so can you see that it's in our character and our words and our actions that we're to shine for Jesus. Shine for Christ by displaying Christ's likeness before a watching world. But I want to focus in on one area of application for us. I think gender and sexual identity are the big issues of today, which we can struggle with when we're talking with others outside the church. And when there's conflict or the potential for conflict, I think most of us respond by either fight or flight Either we fight back with our words, get aggressive or defensive, or we just keep our heads down, we stay silent, we say nothing. Are you tempted to hide your light, your Christian faith under a basket? You see, God doesn't want us to fight or to hide, but to love. To love people. With their gender and sexuality, many people made in the image of God are hurting and confused and angry and scared. And we don't want to. Please don't respond to people with Bible bashing or with nastiness and unkindness. And yet we struggle to know how to respond, and in a way that's winsome and compassionate. Imagine someone at work or school tells you that they've come out as gay, or someone, else, or someone tells you of their past struggle with it, but now their joy in being openly transgender, and they're wanting you to accept that and to celebrate with them, that with them too. How do you respond as lights in that situation? How do you be lights in that situation? Maybe you could invite them to catch up over coffee or a lunch and you can listen with love. Listen with love to more of their story, asking questions and genuinely caring, asking questions about their experience and how others have responded to them in the past and recently. Please genuinely seek to understand their perspective and their pain. Maybe you could then ask if it's okay for you to share a story. Because as psychiatrist Glenn Harrison says in his helpful book, A Better Story, you can't respond to a great story with a list of facts or just quoting some Bible verse. If you want to win hearts as well as minds, you need to tell a better story. And briefly, that story that he shares um, is one of us having our identity in being created by God. But then there is a fall. And we get reconciled to God through Jesus. And now we actually flourish if we live his way. So the story may go something like this. I believe that God has spoken so we don't have to figure out our sexuality on our own. We are God's creatures and we're welcomed into his reality. And human identity is not discovered within ourself or constructed by us. It is revealed to us. We have identity as God's creatures made in his image. And so we are called to love as he loves. However, we all turn our backs on God and his way and we fail to love him and others. And yet when we trust in Jesus, we get relationship with God. We become children of God and that gives me a vital part of my identity as a Christian. As a Christian, with my identity in Christ, it shapes who I am and everything I do, my sexuality and my behavior. And so for me as a Christian, the way I think about my gender, my sexuality, sex, and it all flows from my relationship with the God who made me. I believe we will all flourish as human beings when we work with rather than against the grain of God's reality. God loves us passionately, and his vision for sex and relationships is tough, and yet it's good. He wants me to trust that what he says in the Bible is good for me and for human flourishing. And if you were to think it helpful, you might go on to say, we believe that living out an identity at odds with our biological sex will not bring peace. Or you might say, for Christians, sexual intimacy is bound up in the faithful commitment of marriage between a man and a woman. We want to invite everyone and anyone to join us in having life with God that will bring flourishing. Invite them to join you. And maybe you could finish with something like, does that make sense? Or do you have any thoughts or questions so you can continue the conversation? Yes, even in response to something like that, they may still be offended or they may feel danger in what we profess. But for the life of the world, for the sake of the gospel, we don't remain silent. So as shining lights in the world God asks you, Christian, to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. He asks you to turn away from arguing, fighting, abusing, whether in your home, in your workplace or wherever. God asks you to turn away from sin and immorality and pornography and live differently from those around you. God asks you to stay faithful to your spouse or celibate and single. God desires that our gender and its expression aligns with our biological sex for our good and our flourishing. And I understand that for people experiencing gender dysphoria that it is overwhelmingly hard and confusing. I recommend Andrew Walker's book, God and the Transgender Debate. It also has advice for parents seeking to talk with their children about these things too. May we speak words of words that point people to the truth and the goodness and the grace of the Lord Jesus. Shine like stars in this world and may Bundy, our church, be a place where people, even Christian people, feel safe speaking about their gender dysphoria or their same-sex attraction. And may the ways that we at this church listen and love and speak the truth in love, may we therefore be shining, a shining light to all who come, and to those in our community. Final brief point is for Christ. Coming back to the passage, Paul says that as the Philippians shine like stars, in verse 16, I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labour for nothing. And I think we can struggle with this word boast. It sounds arrogant or proud. In Paul's honor-shame culture, it does speak of him wanting to avoid shame before the Lord. And the word boast can also include the sense of rejoice. And on the day when Christ comes again and brings the judgment, Paul wants to be able to rejoice in all that he's done for the Lord. He longs to hear on that last day, well done, good and faithful servant. I hope you long for that too. He wants to he doesn't want, he doesn't want to have labored for nothing and his life to have been wasted. Do you want that too? He's been willing to pour his life out, pour his life out as a drink offering. Usually wine, in the Old Testament, wine would be poured out as an offering of thanksgiving to God. And Paul says the Philippians have given themselves as the sacrifice the sacrificial service to God, and he's poured himself out for their good and for Christ. And he's glad about this. He rejoices. He rejoices in being able to pour his life out, give his life up for others and for the glory of God. And he wants the Philippians to be glad and to rejoice with him too. And so this says, living your life for the Lord, it is worth it. It is fulfilling. It is joy-giving. Do you believe living such a life is worth it? Do you rejoice in what God is doing in others? Are you an, an instrument of joy in the lives of other people? Or a joy taker? Are you helping others to shine and flourish for Jesus? So as I conclude, Paul's Paul for Paul, his salvation by Christ and the day of Christ, the return of Christ is what motivates him to what motivates Paul to live for Jesus now knowing that he will stand before Jesus one day, motivated Paul and it should motivate us. We should obey and be blameless and shine because Jesus is coming back soon. Shine like stars in the world, for your Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, when I, I think when we read this, we know that we're not faultless. So often in our homes, our private lives, our workplaces, our sporting clubs, we're not faultless and blameless. Please forgive us for the times when our lives fail to be a good witness for Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you might turn us away from selfishness and sin, crooked and perverted lives, and that we might, with your help and by your spirit, Put sin to death and live your way and do good works and obey what you say, shining in this world for our Saviour. Lord, we can't do it on our own. We need your help. We need your strength. So please do in us what only you can. And Lord, in our lives, in our homes, out in the world, in our church, may we be people and a community of your people where we shine out the difference that Jesus makes. Amen.